This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Tonight, Professor Susan, Susan Nebo, whose work will be known to many of you. She is um, a professor in the Law Faculty of Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. She's been uh, a long-time writer on um, refugee issues as, uh, as relates to both international law and uh, domestic law in the um, Australian context and uh, beyond, um, and also written on issues, uh, cognate issues like trafficking, for example. Um, she's uh, been a, a visiting fellow at the RSC, uh, I think twice, haven't you? Three times. Three times. <coughs> Three times. Um, uh, but is currently a visiting fellow at the, um, the Institute for Advanced Studies. No, ref- no? the Refugee Law Initiative. At the Refugee Law Initiative at the University of London. So she has gone elsewhere this time. Um, she has told me that it's due to her partner who wants to be in London, not to do with uh, any, uh, any unattractiveness at Oxford, and we're pleased to know that. Um, uh, she's published a, a great deal of work on um, refugee law over the years, uh, which has kind of extended into politics in some ways, including um, uh, most recently... Uh, Transnational Crime and Human Rights, Responses to Human Trafficking in the Greater Mekong Subregion, Refugees, Asylum Seekers and the Rule of Law, which came out in Cambridge University Press in 2008, and um, New Regionalism and um, Asylum Seekers, which was an edited volume which came out in Burkhan Books in 2007, and many uh, different articles on um, aspects here. And given the Australian situation, it's uh, you know been incredibly in the news lately, but then again, it's been incredibly in the news in the last 15 years or so. Now, uh, it's never out of the news. Uh, I think it's particularly apt that we have Susan here tonight, who can fill us in on uh, some of the developments there, with her talk, which is going to be on regional engagement and um, effective protection, the Australian way. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Matt, and thank you, everyone, for coming, and thank you also to the Refugee Study Centre for inviting me back, despite my apparent defection, which, as Matt explained, can be blamed on my husband's preference for the culture of London as distinct from from Oxford. I'm sorry, Uh, but it's it's a delight to be back. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm very gratified to see so many people here tonight, and I hope I don't disappoint, but I just want to explain from the outset that, in fact, I'm terribly bored with the Australian situation, so I am going to put it into context, but I'm actually much more interested in the regional issues these days, and so I'm really going to kind of explain Australia's attitude to asylum seekers uh, in the context of, of the region. 
So here goes. So I hope that I um, arouse your interest and introduce you to some new ideas. But what I want to start with, first of all, is telling you that um, two weeks ago, the latest saga in the nasty saga of refugee issues in Australia was the passage of a piece of legislation called the Migration Amendment Temporary Protection Visa uh, sorry, Temporary Protection Visa Regulation of 2013. Now, I'm going to tell you about this, not because I'm going to make this a legal lecture, but I think that this is really important piece of uh, um, legislation to show how the Australian government characterises the refugee problem. And so what we can see through this new regulation is that the Australian government has obviously reintroduced the idea of temporary protection which was scrapped by the Labor government in 2008 when they were elected. Uh, that's not so important but it, it's, it, it's the implications of this, the fact that through this regulation we can see that the Australian government is really turning its back on the idea of the asylum seeker as such. These People, uh, asylum seekers are characterised in this regulation as, as people who choose to move as migrants with agency, uh, as people who go with the support of people smugglers and, and who are attempting to achieve outcomes which are inconsistent with a system of planned migration because that is what we have in our country and what you are now trying to achieve now. So there is this idea that there are genuine and non-genuine uh, refugees and also embedded in the explanatory statement to this regulation is a statement about the fact that Australia, in fact, doesn't owe obligations to individuals under the Refugee Convention. It owes obligations to other states. So what I want to show tonight is that, that we really see a very old-fashioned view of what international law is, is about, a very old-fashioned view of the idea of refugees. Uh, embedded in this also is the fact that Australia takes refugees in different categories, one of which is, is a group who are resettled under the UNHCR resettlement scheme, and they simply do not want these spontaneous asylum seekers turning up and upsetting things. And indeed, this week, the, minister, the new Minister for Immigration uh, said that uh, when he was criticised because he is insisting that asylum seekers be referred to by the press and in public statements as illegal immigrants, he's given a directive which is for the most part apparently being ignored, he said he doesn't want these people to feel good about the way they come to this country. So that is the sort of rhetoric, the sort of atmosphere that we have in Australia at the moment, a situation which really has not improved since the Tampa episode of 2001. It's sort of gone up, up, up and then come down again to a very low low. So, um, so I think this is all... Uh, so, so I'm, I don't know whether this is going to work or not, but this... Yes, it may. So th this, this, this is a good example of... This is an agreement which will break the people's funders' business model. We want to break the back of the people's smugglers' model. But to break the people's smugglers' business model. And smash the people's smugglers' business model. This will smash that people's smugglers' business model. Okay. So you, you get... 
a picture of the sort of rhetoric that we, that we get the whole time in Australia. Uh, and, and it's really very, very, very um, frustrating. And so it is rather nice to come away and to be able to speak about these issues to uh, another audience. So the significance of all this, as I've already suggested, is that it really is a denial of the refugee asylum seeker category. It's, it's also dismissive of the international refugee protection regime, of the right to seek asylum, of the idea of burden-sharing and responsibility of states and, and indeed of, of durable solutions. And so tonight I'm going to put this into the regional context. I want to talk in particular about the Bali process and compare it a little bit with ASEAN. Uh, these are not um, um, processes that you may know a lot about, so I'll take you through some of the, the basics of those to explain how Australia is intrinsically involved in particular with the Bali process and how the Bali process in turn fits with the ASEAN process. And I think for those of you who are interested in the European system, it, it's also very interesting to see how another regional system works. The fact that uh, Australia is part of a region with a particular discourse, I think, has enabled it to, 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 to do things the way it does. But in a, a more theoretical framework, what I'm, what I'm particularly interested in these days, and this is also built into the book that, that Matt just mentioned that I've published, which was looking at uh, human trafficking in the greater Mekong sub-region, is the whole idea of discourses and power plays and, and who is actually leading discussions. So uh, there is a person by the name of Rhys, whom you might have heard of, who talks a lot about uh, speech acts and talks about the active dimension and, and steering modes of how discourse uh, is, is, is developed and that's really what I'm going to focus on tonight. And I will spend some time talking about Australia's legal system also and, and how it has been able to bring the ideas uh, which come out in the Bali process into its legal system and I'm happy to answer uh, lots of questions on that and I'll end up with a few observations. So that's the plan but um, and if you want to have a look at the region, I won't pull up this page now, but there is an, an excellent website from the UNHCR. I'm not going to particularly talk about the UNHCR's role tonight. That's something which is behind all of this and something which I think um, deserves a lot more work. But this for the, the so, so we begin first of all with a bit of a bit of a. Uh, geography lesson, so this is a little bit squashed up. I, I think, you know, Australia's drifting off, New Zealand's drifting off the map there, um, but this is what happens when you cut and paste and fit things, fit things onto a PowerPoint. It's going left, which is, I think it's, well, from my perspective, it's actually going to the right, so, you know, it's drifting very much to the right. So, so here we are, we are... Well, you know, every time I come back to this country, I, I realise that we are just <laughs> still a British colony. It's just, it is just amazing how many um, cultural links there are between our countries. But here we are, sitting there surrounded by uh, a lot of other countries of uh, different cultures other than New Zealand. And so um, what we have is a trickle of asylum seekers coming to Australia, mostly from uh, Indonesia, 
So I should be able to point there. So here we are, Indonesia, which is this. This is a little bit out of perspective, uh, and also a lot from Sri Lanka. And we also have a region where there are a lot of asylum seekers. In fact, one-third, UNHCR estimates that you have actually got about one-third of the world's refugees within this region. And that population covers many different types. There's, in particular, a large group of urban refugees. There are also a lot of refugees in, in Malaysia. Uh, and this is, it, this is important for Australia because a lot of these people also trickle over into Indonesia and then attempt to make the trip to Australia where until recently they've been put onto Christmas Island which is probably too small to come up on this map but it's somewhere up here about there. It's sort of closer to Indonesia than it is to Australia but for historical reasons it is actually Australian territory. So, you know, the High Court got a little bit stroppy um, a few years ago and started saying to the government, you can't just shut people up there and process them as you wish. Uh, you have to give them the same processes. So what they did then was to freeze applications, to disperse people, put them, you know, some in remote, uh, single males were all sent down to Tasmania. That's down here, right down here. That's where the first convicts were sent. Um, um, and and it's, it's been a very random, very secretive process, um, but recently they, and they started sending them again to uh, Manus Island, which is part of Papua New Guinea, and Nauru, which which I think is also off the map here. It's quite some distance away. So we have what is called the Pacific Plan Part 2 starting. So that's, that's more than I intended to say because it's all very, um, very depressing to see things moving back um, so much. So, but that's just a, a, a quick overview of the problem. So what, what I find interesting is, is just how Australia has used... This the Bali process uh, and how the Bali process uh, is, is, is really acting out Australia's national interest in the region. So the Bali process sounds exotic, doesn't it? We all know Bali as a destina holiday destination, etc., etc. But the Bali process, in fact, arose out of that conference in 2002, which you can see from the full title, seems to have nothing to do with asylum seekers and refugees. It's about people smuggling, trafficking in persons and, and related transnational crime. So that's why we get this uh, depiction of asylum seekers as people who are the, the objects, not even the victims. The idea is that they're complicit because the regulation also brings in the idea that asylum seekers are expected to act in non-criminal ways. So I'm a bit of a nerd about these issues, but I find it fascinating to actually go back and to, to track the origins of the Bali process, which in fact arose from, not so very long ago, but in the 1990s, around the time that trafficking became a huge issue, both globally and in the region, there was a lot of concern about irregular migration. Never really quite worked out what is so wrong with irregular migration. But this is something which, which developed, and 
regional consultative processes were basically all led by IOM, International Organization for Migration, so it gives you a flavor of the, the type of um, uh, speech acts, the type of dialogue that we're going to get. Uh, and they were basically, as I say, focused on um, preventing irregular migration. So that was one part, one part of the origins and provenance of the Bali process. The other part was a bilateral arrangement between Australia and Indonesia, who were actually co-chairs of the, of, the, of the Bali process. And that's interesting because, as I'm going to explain a little bit uh, later, Indonesia has recently taken an initiative outside of the Bali process uh, and, and tried to organise its own conference. So I think what is important about the Bali process is that it involves limited actors. It basically operates at the level of ministerial consultations. There is no civil society uh, um, participation in it. it is, its agenda is really that of states. It's concerned with security and controlling migration. Um, so it is a state-led dialogue for states, and, and that, I think, is, is, is really important. And although it began in 2002, it remained dormant until 2009, when, in fact, it was revived. It was revived with lots of publicity. One of the uh, features of the way things are done in Asia is that everything is done with a lot of fanfare, lots of photo opportunities, lots of slogans. Uh, you wander around uh, Thailand today, Bangkok in particular, capital cities, and you see slogans for ASEAN, as I will explain a little bit later. So the revival of the Bali process in 2009 was done, as I say, with a lot of fanfare and a lot of trumpeting uh, by Australia in particular about how this was going to, you know, uh, solve the problem of the trickle of boat, boats coming to Australia. Uh, and we'll see that the, the subsequent development of the process actually tracks all the, the movement of, uh, movements of people, uh, asylum seekers, to Australia. Um, and so, um, but... In all of this, it's in fact intrinsically linked to Australia's interests. So I think this is really important when we come to sum up and think about Australia's responsibility in all of this. So the um, agenda and the me and me a new a new agenda and new mechanisms were were uh, formulated in the period 2002-2011. Uh, UNHCR was involved initially and attempted to lecture the Bali process about the importance of human rights, but doing a close analysis of the dialogue, which as a lawyer I have done, you see that the dialogue of human rights soon gets pushed out. Uh, and very soon it's the, the idea of, of asylum seekers within the context of transnational crime that dominates. One of the uh, really important issues that, that, that arose out of the Bali process itself, um, which was very controversial, was the so-called Malaysia swap arrangement, which was 
entered into between Australia and Malaysia in 2011. I'm not sure whether you know anything about that at all, but it was an extraordinary uh, situation in which the Australian government decided that it would int introduce yet another type of deterrent. It would, instead of processing people on Christmas Island, as it was doing at this stage, it decided it would swap a number of asylum seekers with people who had already been assessed as um, refugees who could be resettled uh, in, a, in Malaysia. So the idea was that 400 asylum seekers would be sent from Christmas Island to Malaysia and that Malaysia would send 4,000 uh, resettled people who'd been recognised by the UNHCR to be refugees to Australia. And I think what was so important about this idea was that it showed how Australia really was rejecting the idea of effective in protection which is implicit in the international refugee protection regime. Because the... Now this, this is a, a little bit of a, a loyally bit here for those who are interested in these things. For some reason, and I don't know how it crept in, the legislation, the Migration Act at this stage, in fact assumed that if Australia was going to send people to another country, they would actually be sending them somewhere where they would get protection. The uh, legislation said the minister could declare that a country is uh, one that provides effective procedures for assessing the need for protection, that it would actually provide protection to people uh, seeking asylum, and that they would also be given a protection pending their voluntary repatriation and that it would meet relevant human rights standards. So everything looked uh, perfect on paper in terms of what Australia's obligations were. And the problem in this case for the Minister for Immigration was that he made his declaration without really looking at the situation in Malaysia without taking into account the fact that it would not be Malaysia that would be, in fact, uh, processing the refugees, but it would be done by UNHCR, uh, by ignoring the fact that it was going to be IOM with scant resources that was going to be providing protection, uh, by ignoring the fact that, that, that people were going to be forced back to their countries of origin fact refilled, and indeed that Malaysia did not meet relevant human rights standards. There, there was a huge groundswell of action from uh, civil society on this process, uh, and, and this was something which was, was behind all of that. So in legal terms, it was really quite simple. It, it, the court, the High Court said, well, the minister could not reasonably have made have made this declaration. There, there really were not the, um, there was not the evidence to show that Malaysia was indeed a country that was safe for refugees, that it would provide effective protection in the face of, of, of evidence about um, pervasive human rights abuses of, of recognised refugees in that country. And so 
we refugee advocates and lawyers in Australia got very excited about this decision, thought that, that finally Australia was growing up. The High Court even said things about the Refugee Convention actually being part of Australian law, that it, that it was actually consistent with the Migration Act and, and that the Refugee Convention was something that, that, that had to, to happen, that had to be followed. So this is interesting because this bit of legislation was in fact put in in 2001 after the Tampa episode when you would have thought that they would have been a little bit more careful. Well, after this they were a lot more careful. This legislation has now been repealed, it's gone, it's been replaced with a piece which basically says Australia can send people to wherever they wish providing that it is in the national interest and there is some guarantee that those people will not be reformed. And it's on that basis that offshore processing, something which Europe has not been able to introduce, has begun yet again, as I mentioned, on Manus Island and Papua New Guinea. But I think it's not just the... Um, legal aspects of that and the, the, the ideas behind the Refugee Convention, which were consistent with this legislation, which are important. It's also the fact that Australia sits in a region where basically New Zealand is the only country that could ever provide effective protection in that sense. If we just take for the moment, without going into any uh, debate, what about the meaning of effective protection, that this, this sort of embodies what it might mean. Australia sits in a region where there just is not that ability for asylum seekers to achieve effective protection, which is why, of course, they are coming on to Australia. So, agreement, as I say, was in fact formulated as, as part of the Bali process. Uh, a lot of other things are done under the Bali process. In the revamping of the Bali process, for example, a, a, a regional immigration liaison officer network was set up. Many, many acronyms and many, many, many groups, hierarchical groups, uh, doing all sorts of little bits around policing irregular migration. So I think it's really important to understand that Australia is essentially exporting its policies to the region through the Bali process. In fact, it spends a lot of money on capacity building in the region. It trains immigration officers as well as sets up, as well as having set up this uh, regional uh, immigration liaison office. In Indonesia, for example, it has funded detention centres.
So we can see that the Bali process is really a reflection of that securitized discourse on irregular migration, the idea that irregular migration involves people smugglers who are criminals, which was on that little video clip that I showed you. And so this is reflecting, as I say, Australia's national policy on asylum seekers, the, the desire to control uh, immigration and to ignore the fact that these people are indeed asylum seekers. But the important point about the Bali process is that it is also a process that involves limited actors and narrow discourse, uh, which reflects what we could call a hierarchical agenda-setting process or steering mode, in the uh, words of RIS. Uh, the role of UNHCR in this is, is indeed interesting. Uh, it seems to me that the UNHCR is disenchanted with the Bali process uh, as it is at the moment. That's an issue that requires further exploration. As I mentioned, there was an interesting move in uh, August of this year. In, at the height of a crisis, Australia's had quite a, a spike in arrivals this year. Indonesia, in fact, organised a, 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 a meeting uh, and of its own initiative, uh, Australia was invited, as well as a number of other countries not involved in the Bali process, but from which uh, asylum seekers are originating. Uh, this was interesting in itself, the fact that, that Indonesia, as a co-host of the Bali process, in fact, chose to act in this way. But, um, indeed, if we drill down into the language of the declaration, it's not particularly uh, different to the Bali process itself. So a little, little bit of interest in this, in, in that, that Indonesia seemed to step slightly away from the Bali process. But still the focus is on, on people smuggling. There's some recognition that uh, asylum seekers and refugees and their possible secondary movements are something that needs to be uh, considered. There's discussion of burden sharing and collective responsibility, but indeed this seems to be burden sharing and collective responsibility in terms of, uh, of Australia. Under the Bali process itself, when there is discussion of burden sharing and collective responsibility, the language very implicitly is that this type of cooperation is something which is in Australia's interest. It does not seem to be a recognition of the issues in the, the region. So that this appeal to the collective interest in preventing secondary migration, in other words, appears under the Bali process and the Jakarta Declaration to be something which is going to, in fact, favour Australia's interests ahead of anyone else and promote orderly migration. So I think that what we can see from the Bali process and we'll see further with ASEAN is that Australia is simply hiding its head in the sand and ignoring the reasons why people move and how Australia is in fact linked to global processes and global movements.
So now here is another little map and I just thought I would put this in here because I'm going to turn now to talk a little bit about the ASEAN process and the ASEAN dialogue and just to give you a little bit of background about some of these individual countries which are also parties to the ASEAN process uh, and which have uh, refugee problems. So first of all I should explain that ASEAN actually means um, Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And ASEAN was formed in 1967 and it includes most of the countries which we would call Southeast Asia. Australia is not as such part of ASEAN. It would very much like to be so. It's part of another group which is known as ASEAN Plus Six which is a comprehensive economic partnership agreement, so, and which also includes um, New Zealand and India, Japan, South Korea and China. So ASEAN is quite an exclusive little, little club which is, is gathering a lot of its own, own momentum. So here are some of the countries uh, which are important to ASEAN. Oh, this is actually the Greater Mekong subregion. I couldn't find very easily a map of Southeast Asia, although, sorry, I'll go back to that one. This one is showing it more completely, but you have very different countries here. You have Thailand, which within the region is now becoming quite a wealthy country uh, and which is in fact uh, receiving many migrant workers from the region and also many refugees, large populations of um, urban refugees in Thailand. Myanmar, well we know about Myanmar, we know about the Rohingya problem and we know that many Rohingyas and other groups of Myanmar people are in fact in Malaysia which is hidden down here. Uh, we also have Vietnam which is still a refugee producing country, although we don't hear a lot about it. It has a socialist economy. Uh, we have in here Cambodia, which is one of the few parties to the Refugee Convention. It's the only party in this group which is indeed a party to the Refugee Convention. And we don't have to think very hard to understand why Cambodia alone might be a party to the Refugee Convention. Because there's so much international uh, interest in Cambodia, uh, undoubtedly there's been some pressure exerted. We also have little Lao PDR here, which is uh, asset rich, uh, but otherwise quite poor, uh, and in which there is a huge amount of investment. We have Malaysia, which is home to many, many, many migrant workers and refugees. Off our map, but down here we have Singapore, which is, uh, we know, a wealthy nation state, city state, and we have Indonesia, which is off the map, but in fact Australia's closest neighbour, uh, with huge problems of its own, a huge amount of um, internal migration itself, uh, and which is hosting many of the refugees, asylum seekers who trickle down to Australia. So these are the countries which are important to the region uh, and which are also part of the 
as in process. So what I wanted to tell you about the ASEAN process is that it has a dialogue which is, looks as if it's starting to go in a different direction to the Bali process. The ASEAN process is, is, is looking as if it is truly uh, a regional process which is starting to take into account uh, regional interests. I'm not going to paint too rosy a picture because I can see Barbara looking at me there and we all know things are not rosy in the region, but there, there, are, some, there are some interesting developments that, that I want to tell you about. So my point in showing you the previous map was to, to give you a sense of how you have a disparate group of nations at different stages of development, different models of government, and yet we do have on the face of it, uh, a successful body known as ASEAN, which appears to be steering uh, regional dialogue on many of these issues. In many respects, ASEAN is quite similar to the Bali process. Um, it, it has a, a very strong respect for the individual sovereignty of states which translates into a principle of non-interference. It prefers decision-making through consultation, partly because there is so much conflict and real and threatened conflict in the region. There are still spats over the ownership of islands. Uh, there are still situations in which, you know, uh, a, a domestic worker is hung and, and relations get very, very tense. So it's, it's a region where there are serious tensions which I think don't, ex on a level which I think do not exist, for example, in Europe. There's often comparisons drawn between the EU and ASEAN, but that's like comparing uh, apples and, uh, and, and, and goats, in my opinion. <laughs> But what I think is interesting about the ASEAN dialogue is that although it also has an interest, uh, a strong interest in, in controlling migration, and whilst it's not openly welcoming to asylum seekers, there is a slight move, a slight change in the discourse, which is coming through uh, a parallel discourse to the securitized one which is focusing on development gaps in the region, on the idea of development and human security. So it, it's, it's that which I want to focus on in, in, in the second half, second and last main, main part of this talk tonight. So, uh, as I mentioned, um, ASEAN is, is very good at, 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 at badging itself, uh, when you go through uh, Bangkok, I don't know if any of you have seen, but you have, you have posters everywhere of happy, smiling people and this slogan, one vision, one identity, one community. It has uh, a flag, it has uh, not only this motto, but it has uh, an anthem, and it has lots of photo opportunities. I'll just show you one of them. Uh, so we have lots and lots of formal meetings, and again, a bit like the Bali process, it, it, it's, it's, it's hugely structured in hierarchies, uh, and, and, and uh, 
and, and, and lots of acronyms. In particular, the, the, there is this idea of an ASEAN community, it, uh, which in fact uh, is divided into three. We can see that the, there is the political security community, which was originally just security community. There's an economic community and a socio-cultural community. These each have extensive descriptions of what they cover. Uh, it's extremely interesting. Uh, there's also an ASEAN charter. Well, it's the ASEAN charter which actually came first and which set up the community. And you can see that it's there... Uh, the community and the charter are there to promote a common ASEAN identity and a sense of belonging among its people in order to achieve its shared destination, goals and values. Sounds very nice on paper. Uh, I just tried to give you a sense of how disparate these countries are. I didn't go into a lot of detail, but you've got religious differences, uh, all sorts of differences. But in particular, there are great disparities in income. And this is really what is incredibly important in the ASEAN community. So um, this ASEAN community is, um, is, 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 is interesting because, as I'm going to explain, we've seen that, um, it is moving, it has recently created an ASEAN, ASEAN Declaration on Human Rights, and it does say some things about refugees. So, where do refugee issues fit within ASEAN? Well, they're actually situated within the APSC. So, one thing you have to get used to in uh, this region is acronyms. Acronyms after acronyms. So APSC is the ASEAN Political Security Community. We might have hoped they would be in the socio-cultural community. Asylum seekers don't really raise many mentions within ASEAN at all. So it's interesting because there is in fact another bigger issue that is in a sense to do with forced migration in the region. And this is the issue of migrant workers. The issue of migrant workers within the region is, is a hugely sensitive political one. And interestingly, the issue of migrant workers, in fact, sits partly in the political security community and partly in the socio-cultural community. It actually straddles it. So it's interesting to see by comparison that sorry, just get out of that, that uh, refugee issues are in the political uh, security community. Now, within um, ASEAN, there has until now been very little reference to human rights. In fact, very famously in 1993, when the, 
the countries, the ASEAN countries, got together, not as ASEAN, but as, as countries ahead of the Vienna Convention on Human Rights, and passed a declaration. They talked about human rights as gaps in development between the global north and the global <coughs> south. And I think that's a crucial point. So in 1993, we have Asian countries thinking about human rights as being the responsibility of Western countries or the global north. You, in fact, uh, find that the language of human rights is not liked in Asia. When I was in Singapore a few years ago on another study leave at another institution, uh, in fact, I wanted to talk to people about migrant <coughs> workers, but that's associated with human rights and nobody would talk to me whilst I was in Singapore. On the second day I was there, I got a lecture about a lawyer who had actually written about human rights in Singapore and how that person was really a tainted person and not to have anything to do with that person. It, 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 is, it's qu it is quite a curious language. I mean, there are languages and languages, but there is definitely a very different language that is used in the ASEAN region, in the Asian region, about what we call human rights. Instead of human rights, they like to talk about traditional uh, security and non-traditional security. And also creeping into this, as I'm going to explain, is some language which is about human security. And human security seems to be human rights. It's not entirely clear. But let me just explain a little bit more about these ideas. So, the idea of, of traditional security or direct threats is something which is um, very much um, in tune with ASEAN's objectives. In fact, some people have explained ASEAN as a process that was uh, invented to stop the whole region from imploding, that everyone was threatening each other at the time. We move from the idea of traditional to non-traditional security. And so non-traditional security threats are, are indirect threats, such as human smuggling and irregular migration. So that's where that comes into. So asylum seekers and irregular migration. So transboundary challenges is another way of describing this idea of non-traditional security. Refugees in the APSC are in fact described as part of a problem of post-conflict peace building. So you can see that they're very, very narrowly framed as, 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 as people who arise out of, of, out of conflict. But within this language, there is also, as I've mentioned, a creeping reference, an extension of these ideas of traditional and non-traditional, which include, as I've mentioned, transboundary challenges, uh, human smuggling, also environmental issues are hugely important in Asia, 
because you see what happens when they burn the forests in Borneo uh, and uh, Indonesia. Singapore and Malaysia get shut down. They're all quite close to each other. So one issue on which there has been a lot of agreement in the region is environmental issues, which I think is interesting. But it's this, this question of... Uh, development gaps, development disparities within the region, which is in fact bringing up a new language in the writing, in the region, about the region and in the language of ASEAN. The idea of human security, the idea that if you have these persistent gaps in development, you are going to have social tension, your community is not going to work, and so we've got to do something about it. So I think this is a very interesting idea and an interesting um, contrast with the Bali process, which is very narrowly focused just on a securitized uh, control of irregular migration. The ASEAN process is one that is truly regional. It's moved on from 1993 when human rights or human security, or call it what you like, but discussion about development was seen in terms of global north versus global south, or I should say global south being exploited by global north. It's now being realised that there is a problem in the region and the region has to deal with it. So I think this, this, this is in fact a, a really important point um, and it, it, it's also, I think, showing how Australia is just simply missing the message, not understanding why asylum seekers are asylum seekers. So there is um, an ASEAN uh, Human Rights Declaration. I won't spend a, a great deal of time on it. There, there, it's, it, it's very interesting. Uh, I can point anyone to uh, reading on it if they wish. But... Uh, and, and it, it, it has some very good points, and it has, uh, it's, in some ways, it, it's broader, for example, than, than general human rights instruments. In some ways, it's narrower, but I'm just highlighting a few things here. The idea that, for example, in Article 2, that everyone is entitled to the kinds of rights and freedoms which actually cause people to be refugees and asylum seekers, not just the post-conflict situation. It highlights the idea of the right to development. It highlights the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion, which is behind so much of the refugee movement uh, in the region as well. So that's interesting. It is hedged about by restrictions. It still has that ASEAN idea of non-interference and the idea that states are responsible and that, that people, but also has the idea which is quite controversial in Article 6, that people are only uh, owed uh, refugee rights if they perform duties, an idea which possibly reflects more of a socialist ideology. As I say, it's a very fascinating and disparate region. But this is what I think is very interesting. We have, despite the fact that we have our refugees in the political uh, security uh, community, we have a freedom of movement and the right to seek asylum. And if we drill down into that right to free, 
freedom of movement it actually is a bit broader in some ways than, than, than the, the uh, international instrument. Uh, uh, but also this right to seek and receive asylum in accordance with the laws of the state. Uh, I've highlighted those bits just to show it's not absolute, but you know, states can, 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 can reject it. But, but it's a beginning, it's a recognition of the idea of asylum seekers. It hasn't yet been married together with the idea that the right to development, the, dis the discrimination uh, which causes so many people to, to become asylum seekers is actually behind um, the idea of, of refugeehood. So I think that's important and as I've already uh, foreshadowed, I think the purpose of what I've been doing is to show that you have got the ASEAN community shifting to include human security concerns arising from gaps in development, although not talking about human rights, the ideas behind human rights are starting to be there, but there's still ambiguity in it. Uh, but as I say, it's, it's rec starting to recognise the realities of the region and the need to recognise problems, whereas the securitised discourse under the Bali process is one which, as I've uh, typified it already tonight, is like a head-in-the-sand approach. So, very briefly, just to finish off, I think that what we can see, uh, or the implications of Australia's approach to asylum seekers, the way that it, 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 it behaves, uh, is that there is a, a split between a discourse which focuses on uh, migration and development, which is developing in the region, uh, and the Bali process, which is focusing on irregular migration. Which, and I think this is showing how Australia is turning its back on the effects of globalisation and forced migration. We can see quite clearly in the way that Australian jurisprudence has developed in relation to asylum seekers that they have, that, that, that the government does not want to know anything about statelessness, for example. We can see that forced migration is 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 just not an idea that they want to know about. As I mentioned at the outset, the regulation itself talks about people, it talks about minors who choose to leave their families and come to Australia, and then how dare they attempt to seek family reunion uh, and bring their family out. It talks about fathers who leave their family behind and travel to Australia as a matter of choice and leave their families behind and suggests that these people have freely chosen to do these things and that they are deliberately um, circumnavigating Australia's laws. So I think this is really showing a very narrow approach to the whole issue. So just in terms of some of the characterisations that have taken place through the law, and this is something else that interests me a lot, the way that the law and the legal systems allow these, um, these wrongs to happen. Um, just a few examples without <coughs> going into any technicalities whatsoever. We can see in Australian jurisprudence that 
the courts have sanctioned the sovereign right of Australia to remove people who have been essentially um, analogised to enemy aliens. The High Court has also accepted the constitutional right of Australia to segregate aliens from the community. And I should explain that alien is in fact a term that's used in the Constitution to, to give uh, power over um, immigration matters. So that's <coughs> not to overplay the use of the word aliens there. But certainly in the first example, after the tampered the Tampa decision was all about uh, characterising asylum seekers as analogous to enemy aliens, or largely about. And I think that if we look at the Bali process in context, and in terms of what Australia is doing, the way it is exporting its policies, um, its capacity building, its building of detention centres, its setting up of immigration liaison office, preventing people from moving, in the context of everything, we can see that uh, this, this idea, which is also made explicit in this explanatory statement on the regulation, that Australia has no causal link to these problems, that these people have chosen to move. If Australia is breaching human rights, so this, doc this explanatory document says, it goes into the human rights implications of the new temporary visa uh, regulation, uh, it actually says, this is not our problem, this is not our fault, we have not caused it. And I think we can translate that reasoning onto the regional area and see that Australia is in fact acting in its own interests in this, um, in this area. And we see the commodification of asylum seekers under the Malaysia swap arrangement uh, an arrangement which some people suggest actually amounts to trafficking or trading people. Uh, as I've mentioned, there's this export of border control policies through the Bali process. So that is how effective protection in Australia works. It's something which is really in Australia's national interest. So some questions. Does this approach stand up on ethical grounds in reference to my host? I have to end on this note. I think that uh, we see the control that's exercised through the Bali process, the proximity between Australia, both geographically and in terms of, of, of processes and, and governance and so forth. Uh, and the fact that we, we don't have a level playing field, that Australia is effectively, along with New Zealand, uh, one of the few countries that can provide this effective protection. Uh, and I think that um, that is really where I want to end with the suggestion that, this, that Australia is... is, is setting a very bad precedent for the rest of the world because, as we know, it exports its policies not just to the immediate region but to the rest, rest of the world. So on that note, I'll stop and hopefully I'll provoke some questions and thoughts.
information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.